Good morning. My name is Natalia Sanulescu Bogdan, and I'm the Associate Director of the International Program at the Migration Policy Institute. It is my pleasure to welcome you all to this event on Making Social Cohesion Work for Everyone. What can we learn from development interventions on how to promote inclusion and reduce xenophobia? This is a formal side event of the first ever International Migration Review Forum taking place this week in New York. And MPI is so pleased to be co-hosting this event today with the United Nations Development Program and Annabelle Belgium's Development Agency. Just uh, two notes on logistics before we get started. If you have any technical problems, you can email events at migrationpolicy.org. We will have an interactive portion after the panel. Uh, you can type any questions or comments into the Q&A box or use the chat function. And please note that these comments and questions will be visible to everyone on the webinar. Uh, so to kick us off today, it is my distinct privilege to introduce Ms. Asako Okai, who is UN Assistant Secretary General and Director for the UNDP Crisis Bureau, who drives UNDP's vision and priorities for crisis prevention, response, and recovery. We're lucky to have her with us as we review what progress has been made toward the Global Compact on Migration and think about where we need to go from here. Asako, the floor is yours. Thank you, Natalie, uh, for your kind introduction, and many thanks to the Migration Policy Institute and the Belgian Development Agency, Annabelle, uh, for teaming up with UNDP to organize this official side event of the International Migration Review Forum. Our joint side event asks a pertinent question. What can we learn from development intervention on how to promote inclusion and reduce xenophobia? Four years after the adoption of the Global Compact for Safe, Orderly, Regular Migration in Marrakesh, we are far from achieving its 23 goals. For sure, member states have made significant progress, but many gaps remain, especially when it comes to address the needs of the most vulnerable migrants, especially women and children. On the occasion of the IMRF, we need to redouble our efforts to fight xenophobia, uh, racism, discrimination under all its forms. Social cohesion is essential about, essentially about trust. Trust uh, in government and trust within society, including migrants. Today, so many people perceive migration as a problem. It is easier for some politicians to scapegoat migrants uh, for all of society's ill, rather than highlighting their contributions. This is not what the Global Compact for Migration stands for. We believe that migrants contribute to the sustainable development of their countries of origin and destination alike. And investing in social cohesion is one of the key tools to help reduce hate speech and promote peaceful coexistence between migrants and host communities. We come together today to start a practical dialogue on how inclusive societies can be further promoted and how to ensure that migrants are more effectively integrated into economies and societies. As we strive to find the perfect recipe to achieve social cohesion, we have learned a few lessons. An in-depth understanding of the context is crucial when designing programs to promote social cohesion. 
we need to uh, to base uh, our, uh, the act on empirical evidence uh, for program design, implementation, and evaluation. Shared ownership has a key role, ensuring buy-in from migrants and host communities at all stages of implementation is important. We can also learn from livelihood programs in low and middle income countries. While not always called social cohesion project, development projects have a long experience building, uh, bridging, uh, bringing uh, different uh, groups together in pursuit of common goal. In Costa Rica, for instance, IOM and UNDP have contributed to social cohesion by providing basic equipment, training, to migrants and host community uh, women uh, on hairdressing and entrepreneurial skills. By uh, integrating Nicaraguan immigrants uh, into the host community, the program created better bounds for friendship between the groups. This is a kind of initiative that brings communities together. In this event, distinguished panelists uh, have gathered to share their practical experiences in fighting discrimination and xenophobia good and bad. We will hear examples uh, from uh, different regions of the world, how they try to promote social cohesion. We will hear about success stories and maybe also about ideas that looked good on paper but fell short in practice. Frank and openness to share experience is a way to learn to be better in the future. I wish uh, you all a fruitful discussion. Thank you. Over back to you, Natalia. Thank you so much, Asako, for um, these inspiring open remarks. And, and thank you for reminding us that there's so much we can learn about what works in terms of combating xenophobia, even from programs that aren't uh, called social cohesion interventions per se. Um, and also for reminding us how much effort has been put in at the global level to prioritize these efforts to reduce xenophobia, reduce prejudice. Um, we're building on decades of research that suggests that increasing contact between different groups can, under the right conditions, unearth common ground and reduce prejudice. And, and this is the key part, I think, that we're trying to unpick today. This caveat, under the right conditions, is where we still find a critical gap in evidence because we know that not all contact is created equal. We don't actually know enough yet about what works, what really works to promote more positive attitudes and balanced views of migration in different contexts. And critically, what can sustain these feelings over the long term? And I just wanna put on the table three reasons why I think it's really important that we're gathered here today to try to get this right. First. We know that proximity on its own does not bridge differences or change perceptions. The conditions under which people come together matter immensely. Contact that is too brief, too casual, too unequal can actually backfire under some circumstances. And bringing people together close in proximity and physical proximity, but failing to address that they're still far apart in terms of access to opportunities can actually magnify differences instead of bridging them. So we actually have to, have to give people the tools 
to collaborate on equal footing in order to facilitate cooperation and reduce prejudice. And the second point about why this is so important is that the things that are likely to be most effective are often the hardest and most expensive to do. So there's, there's a trade-off between cost-effective interventions like information campaigns or community events that are easy to organize, um, food festivals, soccer matches that might only catalyze casual or superficial contest or keep people together but on different sides versus activities that might promote the most meaningful interactions and potentially have ripple effects beyond the event itself, but which require extremely hands-on oversight and investment. And the third point is that if we don't get the incentives right, even the most carefully designed programs will fail to reach their goals. The fact is many programs that are designed with social cohesion as the main objective have a huge built-in barrier there isn't really an incentive for people who are skeptical of immigration to participate in the things designed to change their minds. So there's a huge selection bias, in other words, where people harboring prejudice or misconceptions about other groups can just opt out of some of these initiatives. And so this is partly why we're talking today about looking to development investments for inspiration. So programs designed to raise overall living standards in low and middle income countries, for instance, by creating jobs or improving infrastructure, also build bridges between groups, even if they're not called social cohesion programs per se. And as opposed to leisure or voluntary activities, they can have powerful practical or economic incentives attached and a built-in mechanism to sustain these interventions over time. So today we're going to try to do two things. First, discuss some of the conditions that need to be in place for intergroup contact to boost social cohesion. And second, to think through what we can learn from development interventions that facilitate interactions among groups as part of livelihood or economic recovery programs. So we're going to start our panel today at the local level, which is the locus of integration. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce the mayor of Mechelen, Alexander van der Smeesen. Uh, the city of Mechelen in Belgium has, has really put its name on the map for its success in fostering social cohesion and reducing polarization at a time when many countries around the world are experiencing rising xenophobia and right-wing rhetoric. Um, so Mayor van der Smeesen, can you talk to us about some of the programs you've implemented that have been successful in fostering high quality contact between different groups and how you've managed to sustain these positive interactions over time. And we'd also be happy to hear about things that you tried that didn't work as well. Okay. Over to you. <clears throat> okay, thank you, um, Natalia, for, um, for having us, for, for the introduction also. Uh, first, I wanna say that we are very happy as uh, the city of Mechelen that uh, cities, mayors are uh, being invited here in New York to take part um, because we really think that cities and, and mayors can make a difference uh, also on, on this level and uh, especially when it's, it comes to um, integration and, and racism and 
So we're very happy to be here, uh, first of all. And we want to thank the, also the Belgian government for, for having us in their delegation. It's uh, really unique and, and much appreciated. Um, for your question, maybe first, I have to tell Mechelen is a very small city. Uh, we, we have 90,000 inhabitants. We're situated between Brussels and Antwerp. Um, and before I come to the specific question, I think it's really important to say that um, when tackling issues uh, like racism and, and xenophobia, it's not, I'm afraid there is not really um, an, a jump start you can make. There's not one uh, recipe uh, solution, uh, and it's not easy. And it's not something that you do overnight uh, in six months, over a year. I, uh, and I have to be honest with you, it's now something we are working on for 22 years. It started in 2000 with uh, the former mayor, Bart Somers. When he became mayor um, of Mechelen, Mechelen was a city in decline. People were leaving, uh, businesses were, were closing. The only people that left were, uh, that stayed were the, the elderly people, people who had, didn't have the means to leave. So the, there were, we were in big trouble. So the first thing he decided, and that's uh, true, and it's, it's, it's really essential, is to invest in uh, the fight against crime. Because at that time, Mechelen was a, we had really a crime issue. Um, and today, 22 years later, uh, we have a historic low uh, number. Uh, of crime. And why do I say that? Because if you have a city where crime is high, people don't feel safe, people uh, don't feel part of a community, uh, people don't get outside. And if, if, there's some, if there is one thing that is the basis for an open society, it's a safe society where people feel safe, feel uh, part of the community and uh, can have a, a normal and uh, uh, rich life. So that's the first thing that happened. Second thing that happened was that we started investing uh, hugely in streets, in sports infrastructure, in culture, um, in everything that makes a city uh, livable, uh, that makes a city want to, to, to go and live there and uh, build your life. Um, we made that. We made that. It's a, that's a fact. Now we are building off the, the debt, but we had to do that because our city, if you don't have the infrastructure, people don't want to live there. Um, that's the second thing. And then after eight to 10 years, maybe even 12 years, things started to change. People came back. Um, the diversity in our city grew. Um, and then, of course, next level, we had to change our narrative. And that was fundamental, I think. Um, we, we really tried to communicate in an open way to everybody. Um, and why could we do that? Because the Michelars, they at the end of the century, they weren't proud of their city anymore. They were ashamed. But let's say around 2010, 2012, that shifted. And you felt that people were proud again. They felt themselves Michelars. And that's a narrative that we started communicating every day, not every hour, but every day, a few times a day, for years. We are all Michelars. Everybody that lives in this city is a Michelar, whether you're brown, black, white, what your religion is, what, your, uh, uh, what, what you want to do with your life. It's, that's, no, that's not an issue. You are a Michelar. And we're all proud of our city. And it really, it, it wasn't 
it wasn't just talk. People were feeling and thinking like that. More and more people, not everybody, but more and more people. In fact, if I tell you that in 2000, 26% of, of the people voted for the extreme right party, Mecca. And in 2018, more less than 9%. In 20, in 18 years, in 18 years, that's spectacular. So if the DNA, the the inner thought of, of the Mechelar Mechel changed in, in 18 years uh, fundamentally. So and then, of course, we come to the, the concrete uh, projects we, we, we did, and it's too much to, to tell them all, but um, I'll give you four. We started the buddy project where every newcomer that arrives in Mechelen has the opportunity to be connected with the Mechelaar. Um, volunteers, Mechelaars who volunteer, and they meet each other one, once or twice a week, and they do things together. And that can be that can be everything. Uh, go and have a coffee, go to the library, um, play soccer, um, read a book together, talk about uh, politics, I don't know. But it's uh, a connection with the local society. It's somebody new in, in, in Mechelen, and who has a person, a Mechelaar, he didn't know before, but who is there for him or her. Not to solve all his problems, or, or uh, it, it's not that we give the, the phone number and uh, uh, they can call uh, that person uh, any time of the day, but it's somebody who who is a host for you, who is a contact in Mechelen, and who shows you around and, and, and learns you things. That's an enormous success. We started with Duo for a Job. Duo for a Job where we uh, brought people from 50 plus uh, who are successful, uh, have, have had a career. We combine them, we, we bring them in contact with youngsters, 18 plus, with a diverse background and who, when they're looking for a job and they have trouble finding one, we bring those two together. Uh, normal success. Uh, for youngsters, but also for the people 50 plus who really uh, enjoy making a difference for for those young people. School inside, we tried to um, convince parents to bring their children not in a, to a school 20 kilometers away, a white school, but a school next door, uh, which was more mixed, because today 50% of the, min uh, the minus 12 uh, youngsters in Mechelen have a, a diverse background, 50%. So that should be uh, visible in schools, but that is not always the case. You have more white schools and the other schools are more colored. So we tried that by speaking to the parents one-on-one, -on -one, uh, trying to convince them. Uh, and I must say, it's growing. It's really growing. People see the opportunities, uh, see also the positive uh, aspects of it. Uh, it. It requires a lot of energy and time, but it works. Uh, and then last but not least, Plan Makers. It's a project. It's four. We, we, I can tell you about 10, 10 or 20, but I don't think we have the time. And the last one is the Plan Makers, when, where we decided to bring people who normally wouldn't live in social housing projects to live in social housing projects. P people with a normal job, who normally, uh, by law, couldn't go and live there. We looked and asked for them to do that, to go and live there and take up responsibility in the neighborhood. They uh, pay less. They pay less than they would normally pay in social housing. 
but uh, in return, they take up engagements, uh, they, they, they bring people together, they, they use their skills to strengthen the neighborhood, to strengthen people living in social housing. It's an enormous success. Uh, we started with three, three people, I think, uh, six years ago. Now we have 25, 30 people living in the, in the, the different uh, compounds of our city. Last but not least, I wanted to say, because I, I forgot, we started with the enormous uh, project of renovation of our social housing in 2008. In 10 years, we om almost renovated and renewed all of our social housing. We didn't build extra, but we renewed and, and rebuilt what we had because it was worn down. People were, that, li that uh, lived there were feeling neglected. And by investing in them, also they also felt uh, recognized and, and felt part of the city and, and, and Mechelaars. So that's an important thing I, I forgot because it's 10 to 12% of, uh, of Mechelen living in social housing. And it made, also made a big difference. So uh, you, you can, I want to conclude, <laughs> you can do a lot of projects and a lot of them work also, but you have to have the premise. You have to have the, the grassroots work done before and that takes five to 10, maybe 15 years to get a city at a certain level of cohesion that everybody feels Michelar and you can uh, do those projects uh, successfully. Thank but you so much. Five minutes um, great. I know it's a, it's, a short, it's a short time that we yes. all have together. And I know you could um, speak of 15 more projects I was really struck by a couple of things that you said. First, that the projects themselves are not enough. If you don't solve the underlying conditions, um, you know, where people feel like they have a future in that society, they have opportunities in that society, and that those opportunities are available to everyone, these bridge building programs don't have a foundation to stand on. I was also struck by how much investment you have mm put into these. Um, as you say, there's no silver bullet. You can't solve these things in a couple of weeks time. And it takes this investment day after day, year after year. Um, and also weaving this narrative that everybody is part of the same community mm -hmm. um, rather than distinguishing between natives and newcomers. Um, really important points that I think we're gonna see reflected in the, in the other interventions. Um, so I want to turn next um, to a different geography, um, going over to Colombia now, um, where we're going to talk about a category of interventions that can leverage economic livelihood or economic generating activities to benefit entire communities um, and bring people together on equal um, so I'd like to introduce my belief, Avila Barona, who is Vice President of the Association Salto Angel, where she's responsible for this really innovative initiative called Banco Amable that has, that has done this, that has leveraged community development projects to shift perceptions about newly arrived Venezuelans. Um, so my belief, can you tell us what the ingredients uh, to success of this program have been. Gracias. Hello, buenos días. Saludos. Hello. A todos los que... 
Hello, good morning. Good afternoon, everyone. Greetings, everyone who is joining us. Greetings from Northern Colombia, which is a territory that has taken in Venezuelan immigrants and also repatriated Colombians and has integrated different communities that have been present throughout history in this territory. So Banco Amable is a territory uh, initiative that came came about through UNDP, which in the year 2018 saw a response to that was happening in migration in terms of the Venezuelan migrant population that was settling in this state specifically in Macau. And so the arrival of this community began to generate As the mayor mentioned previously, situations arose that were awkward and uncomfortable because of the newness, like something new that you would expect in, in a community or something different that might happen. There were certain issues. There were public safety issues and there were isolated incidents that were very visible and generated a lot of backlash in the community in an effort to improve that situation and to bring about a process of integration because this department, this state that we're in that has historically had a strong relationship between Colombians and uh, Venezuelans were recognized as a borderless territory. And so in hopes of strengthening ourselves through this international migration, UNDP through the Borders of Opportunity Program looked for ways of serving this population of newcomers by helping them in society and giving them the opportunity to integrate into civil society. An important point for this initiative in terms of what became Banco Amable was our relationship with institutions. When I was listening to Mayor Alexander speak, I thought that's the key, bringing institutions together because they are the ones that continue this work of fostering integration, building community, which results in a welcoming community for everyone. And so we had to reach out to institutions to create cooperation among local actors and also listen to the migrant community and within the host community to see what the new arrivals wanted to do and how they wanted to do it. And so we were able to put different actions together and we were able to do things that made Banco Amable successful, especially for the, for the people and to bring it into being. It was not an immediate process. It was step-by-step. Step. It was working on ourselves 
strengthening ourselves by listening to people's stories and making people understand. And that once they've crossed the border, they were in a new space to transform their lives because they came here in search of a new life. And, and they were also here to transform their host committee in a positive way. And so we wanted to help people see this and having the different communities see this was the second step because there is no us or them. We are all here together and we want to build a community. And then together, we started to look at what the city needed, what the territory needed to be able to give that. as a means of thanking the community for opening their doors to create a positive welcoming environment and uh, create positive for what the area had done for these migrants for taking them in. And that is where we were able to strengthen our response to our community agents. These community agents are migrants who have been strengthened or empowered and who have been in the territory and have been able to move forward with their dreams and engage in actions. In, they've been able to help with community development, clean up the streets, clean up the city, and engage in actions to make the city more beautiful and to thank the community for receiving us. And in seeing these actions and seeing these public works, people said, okay, I understand. I'm here, but I never picked up a brush to paint or I've never picked up a clean, a broom to help clean my city. And here are new arrivals who are stepping in to do these things. Why shouldn't I join in then? And through this, we were able to create greater cohesion and to get both the host community and these migrants working together. It is a key step forward that is a benefit to the entire community that allows everyone to recognize and it allowed everyone to recognize the vulnerable situation of these migrants. The people who were arriving, but also those in the local community by creating these positive actions, other institutions, the public sector, the private sector also joined in. And as a result, we saw this exchange, this mutual recognition, this incentive, because people were able to say, we're going to acknowledge this. These are volunteers. They are, they are helping in these actions. They're volunteering to clean, to sleep, to work. And this is all volunteer. 
and they were giving these migrants were giving back to the community that were receiving them. But the local community also said we need to recognize this. By providing small incentives, first they began by helping. I'm hoping to support these uh, civil society organizations and networking. And then support entrepreneurship. Because there were people who started baking, baking cakes, or sewing, and making things. And these positive exchanges between the host community and migrants allowed for further building of these activities and joint and joint startups have been formed. And that's the key to bring in all these actions together to the local governments, to the institutions and cooperation entities and other central players present in a given area. So that we can contribute to the real development of that location. And that starts with strengthening each other. We can make no progress if we don't empower people. We can, we tell them that you can make it, you can make it here. Obviously we need to open doors and provide opportunities. And we can strengthen people and empower them and we will succeed because they realize they can make a contribution and engage in positive and hopeful actions. And this must always be done in seeking to integrate the and the and integrate the community, um, not into separate silos. Thank you very much. Um, I want to talk next about how to design these programs. Um, development organizations have a long and rich experience working in post-conflict areas and designing practical programs around livelihoods and infrastructure development that also take into account strategies to build trust and cooperation um, and as we mentioned at the beginning, sometimes these programs are not labeled social cohesion programs, but in reality, there's a lot we can learn about how they bring people together on equal footing and also create some of the incentives for participation that my beliefs was also talking about. So I'd like to turn to Rafaela Greco Saneguti, who's the lead expert on migration and development at Annabelle, the Belgian Development Agency, and our partner in designing this program today. 
Rafaela, over to you. Thank you very much, Natalia, and thank you for all the speeches and, and speakers that have been really inspiring until now to consider how promoting social cohesion can actually reduce xenophobia and discrimination. So uh, as a starting point, I would like to spend 20 seconds in thinking what is then social cohesion, because we're talking a lot about it, and what are the, the elements that are embedded in this very comprehensive concept. And I came by preparing this intervention to four that are crucial to me, cultural, social, economic, and institutional fundamental values and assets that keep a community together. We heard from the mayor, we are, we've heard from Banco Amable, really these four elements needs to be combined when designing whatever project and program that aims at supporting or to uh, build a conducive environment for social cohesion. And it is really on this basis that enable as other development actors uh, consider social cohesion as the ultimate goal, in fact, and if you wish, also a sort of uh, absolute precondition for sustainable and inclusive development to take place, to happen. So when we'll build and design, as you said, um, programs uh, along the lines of livelihood or exploring, exploiting socioeconomic opportunities uh, of a territory, we really have this, not just in the back of our mind, but in front of us, like this contributes actively um, to, social, to social cohesion. So the issue here and the experience we have had is the how do we do so? So how do we make sure that building this livelihood or um, socioeconomic opportunity creating programs can actually contribute this, to this cultural, social, economic, and institutional dimensions of social cohesion. I will bring very quickly the example of the actions that enable as designed in Burkina Faso. So we change again geography and we get to the Sahel area, um, in particular to address uh, crisis more than post-conflict uh, environments where, where for, the beauty of the live stream. So disregard any strange audio that, that we hear. So again, Burkina Faso and uh, putting together these four elements, cultural, social, economic, and institutional, to make sure that uh, uh, activities that are programmed uh, really are conducive of uh, social cohesion. So four levels that really correspond to what we have heard uh, until now. One is um, addressing the um, training and immediate employment needs of all the constituencies by leveraging existing opportunities of the territories, identifying value chain, identifying even small private sector existing um, actions or training centers that can be uh, supported in areas that are uh, under stress, that are under pressure, and that need to be strengthened and given value to exactly like the mayor was saying. Second, prevention of tension related to the increased pressure over scarce resources, including land and water, that are 
constant source of conflicts in community, notwithstanding, uh, I mean, independently from uh, mobility or displacement, that, but they are increased by mobility and displacement. So addressing those tensions with the community and through the community uh, is an essential asset of any program, even programs that are completely geared toward creating uh, economic opportunity. Third, uh, ensuring the representation of exactly as uh, Mabel has just said, of both members of displaced and mobile community and of the constituencies to the instances that are taking decision over the allocation of resources. This is really extremely uh, key. And fourth, uh, supporting the elaboration of development and emergency planning in such a way that they are inclusive of this social cohesion vision and component, that things are not disconnected. So again, socioeconomic opportunities, prevention of conflict, representation, and therefore agency of both the, the uh, resident community and any newcomer and uh, planning vision for a territory with whom, and I conclude very briefly with this, with whom can we do so? First, and we have around the table representatives of this, local actors, local authorities, empowering them and making sure that they take their responsibility on having a view, planning consistently for a territory and for the long run, even in crisis and post-crisis situation. Civil society and members of the diaspora, as we say, member of the diverse communities that reside in a territories, but also in cooperation, I would say also coherence and continuity with um, actions that are targeted and, and that are conducted by humanitarian actors that rightly so focus on a specific target and on a specific vulnerability of, of a group, but needs to be embedded in the vision of development actors in such a way that every part of the constituencies take the responsibility of protection and promotion of the rights of the vulnerability and that development actors take themselves their responsibility to tap into the potential of territories and communities. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Rafaela. I think you really captured this nice interplay of the different conditions that need to be present. And I wanna just um, uh, continue a little bit on one of the, the points that you made, which is about ensuring that each part of the community feels like they have a voice in designing the policies and practices that affect their lives and livelihoods. Um, so I want to turn over to our last panelist to talk exactly about this. Um, so I'm pleased to introduce Alpha Kamara, um, who is a community agent embedded within the National Employment Agency, NFEC, in Morocco, um, and a member of the Ghanaian diaspora community in Morocco. Um, and we'd like to hear from you on how can programs engage the diaspora uh, in, in public services and to ensure that they facilitate migrants' access to services, which we know might exist on paper, but does not always translate in practice. Thank you so much. And um, I wanna thank you 
for associating us with this event through, um, of course, uh, my intervention as far as the general project uh, experience that I've had, but also my experience, my personal experience um, uh, as, as a community agent. I work for Annabelle as a community agent. I am, I am Guinean originally, and what our project that is called Project Amgu, what has, it has brought some pertinent um, responses to the uh, to the change as far as uh, having migraines moving to Morocco. The project responded to a very interesting challenge. So really, it's um, the question of associating migraines to the to the formula from the start of these programs in a general manner, but also in the implementation of these projects, because what is interesting is that as a migrant, they have a deeper understanding of their reality uh, and what they have, they are confronted with. So we have to be able to, um, associate them not only to the products, to the projects, I'm sorry, to the implementation of this one, but also the impact as far as results uh, go. I remember that the other project that we worked um, on that was focused essentially on the socioeconomical uh, insertion of professional migrants. So there was a lot of help with work and also independent work. And as a matter of fact, one of the innovative ideas of this project was really what we call here the community approach inclusive. So it's the fact to have integrated, like I, like I said before, when we implemented the project of the migrant people that we are, I want to remind you that they are for people who were integrated in the implementation of this project. And so we were able to develop this community an inclusive and participative approach that essentially consists of, 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 of in going to the communities and create that link between the public services of work in Morocco that is called La Pete and the migrants. And so we were successful in mobilizing, in raising awareness and helping the migrants, but also having a follow-up with them about all the services that they were receiving that, that exists at the, at the level of public work services, clearly. As community agents, we, we were directly placed at, at the level of these services. I was in an agency where I had Moroccan collaborators who are with me actually, currently. I, I have Moroccan collaborators with whom I work 
it's been years now that I've been doing that. And since we were able to build at the level of the project certain changes, we were able to do it with these advisors. And also, we have a project to develop other pertinent actions uh, in parallel that will uh, benefit us. So like having expos and fairs, since normally we have to make this available to the local community to let them know that the migrants are able are able to do a lot of things in a developed manner. So this has allowed the Moroccan population to have this interaction in a way to see that migrants are not just here to cause problems, but they can really represent a, a support um, when it comes to integrating them in, in, in the country. In the, in the host country, I really loved what the mayor said earlier, as far as work system goes. At the level of uh, our project, we developed a similar system, but the system was focused on the entrepreneurs because there are Moroccan entrepreneurs who were contacted to to work with migrant entrepreneurs, and it was a real success. Since today, these migrant uh, entrepreneurs are developing their own activities uh, uh, to help with their integration uh, in, in Morocco. So there is also another pertinent action, which is to visit the sites, because currently I am moving with certain with certain people who are you know, working in the project, with certain responsible. And this is to allow them to exchange with Moroccan entrepreneurs in terms of experience, to have this cooperation. And we see that it is something that is very interesting. And so personally, as far as my experience goes, in my work, with my Moroccan colleagues. In the beginning, there was, uh, it was, there was a bit of a challenge, you know, that we were confronted to, especially me personally. Let's just say that the contact was not really developed in the beginning when we started working together. We sat, when we started talking with the counselors, but with time, we were able to assure them not only about what we really wanted to do, our intentions, but also to show them that our humanitarian side, because everything that existed as an obstacle in the beginning, we were able to get rid of it, get rid of this challenge. Because honestly, today there is a great collaboration that is in uh, in place, you know, for for us personally, because our role, also, like I said, is to 
implement a, a sort of a passerella or, or, or a way. In fact, we were able to, to, to abolish some barriers. For example, there are workshops that are organized. And so through these workshops, these migrants were able to have very good relationships with these advisors, with Moroccan advisors. And so there are some advisors that say that at the beginning they were very reluctant in their collaboration with these migrants, but now they have a very good image because they, they, they could see the relevance of the ideas of the project, the will of the migrants to integrate within the Moroccan society. So in terms of results, we were able to resolve all these issues that were in our way within our collaboration with these advisors. So today we are living this adventure with a lot of pride and personally, for me, it's a first experience working as part of the bilateral institutional project. But if I have to compare with my experience, what we are accomplishing right now with what, compared to the past is a very beautiful adventure. And I'm really happy to share this experience with you. I know that uh, we don't have much time, but otherwise there would be so many things to say about this experience. So thank you. And I really loved the points you made about how this cooperation doesn't happen immediately. It's something we really have to work at, even when the infrastructure is present. Um, we're going to run just a few minutes over because we have great questions in the chat already. And I do want to um, uh, just have an opportunity to, to go through a couple of them. So my apologies for that in advance. Um, we have a question about evaluation. Um, and so I wanted to ask you, Mayor van der Smeesen, um, how do you measure the impacts of, uh, of these programs? Um, and we know that social cohesion is in and of itself something very difficult to conceptualize, let alone measure. Um, and quantifying you know, the number of people who go through programs is not quite the same as measuring impact. So how do, how do you approach this? It's, um, that's indeed difficult. It's not a difficult question, but a difficult um, thing to evaluate. Um, therefore, we decided, one of the things we decided uh, three years ago was to try and bring um, University of uh, Brussels and the University of um, of, um, of Antwerp, uh, excuse me, of, of Ghent, to Mechelen. Uh, we are not a university town, uh, we have a high school, um, but we asked them if, if they could come with the department, new department to Mechelen, a department that would uh, specifically study and uh, try to follow up on the effects of uh, the policies we have been doing now for 20 years uh, and try, uh, try to measure the effect on the society, on, uh, on inclusion, 
on um, on racism and so on and so on. So they've started, and I think they started now for two years. And, uh, it's the Hannah Arendt, uh, Hannah Arendt Institute in Mechelen. So um, they are working on that to get numbers, and but that's indeed something that is uh, not crucial, but it's uh, important uh, that we can um, match the the policies with with the numbers, with uh, with with hard results, um, as I say. But moreover, we see also that the Flemish government uh, every two year, every two years, they um, they question the population uh, overall <laughs> over a lot of things, uh, security, income, um, but also. They, uh, they ask questions about uh, how people feel about their city. Uh, are they feeling part of society? Are they feeling uh, uh, included in society? And there we see that the, the statistics, the numbers, the results uh, year after year are getting better. Uh, people are feeling better in Mechelen. They are feeling at home. They are feeling uh, included. Uh, they look differently uh, at one another, yeah? um, not only between uh, diverse communities, but uh, also um, between the same communities. Yeah? So those, those are very positive uh, signs, I think, that, um, that those numbers are, are getting better. Another indication is the fact that um, people who are uh, volunteering in Mechelen, they keep, the numbers keep going up. People are, who say, I want to help with whatever. And we saw that for the first time in the Syrian crisis in 2015, when we opened uh, uh, places uh, for, for, uh, for fugitives in, in Mechelen, eh, a village. People came uh, to volunteer. The same happened with the COVID crisis. Uh, almost a thousand uh, Mechelaars said they wanted to help. Thousand, thousand people. So it was totally crazy. And now uh, with the um, with the crisis in Ukraine, it's the same. The numbers keep going up. So you feel that people want to uh, do their part, want to take responsibility. And I think that's a very good uh, evolution. And there's uh, other, other signs, other numbers that indicate that um, overall people are feeling more at home, feeling better in, in the community. Is that, is that so for every community? That's not, that's not clear. But for example, now, and then I'm, I'm, uh, I'm finishing, uh, we had a market, um, a volunteer market last week at City Hall where people could come if they wanted to do uh, volunteer work. And uh, a lot of uh, organizations were there where you could talk to and, uh, and give your name for future, um, for future uh, volunteer work. And what we saw, it was very, because I was there, was there was a very diverse population that was there uh, from all the communities uh, came to the city hall to uh, to get informed of the things they could do as a volunteer. It's not only the white what well, not only white people it's, it's classic it's white people who want to do volunteer work that wasn't that wasn't the case and that's also important because it means that uh, through our society in Mechelen um, everybody will feels like they can do something for other people for the city for uh, for immigrants um, uh, and that the community where you're from doesn't doesn't matter to uh, to take that that engagement so um, we see a lot of positive signs 
but I have to be honest, we just for two years now started studying with uh, an external university who is trying to get the numbers uh, next to, um, to the policies. Thank you. Thank you so much um, for talking about all these, these different ways you try to capture impact. I think we have time. We're going to squeeze in just one last question. Um, we have a question for Rafaela um, on whether you emphasize the gender lens in your interventions. And thank you very much for um, asking the question. I have seen that there is one on sustainability as well, and I will try to pack the, the two of them. Indeed, the gender lens is, is extremely present. Why? First, because I have made the case for Burkina, but it, it's the same in other countries in the Sahel. The majority of um, displaced individuals are women and children. Therefore, uh, the socioeconomic uh, actions, the training, the instant training, the vocational training, the employability, entrepreneurship-oriented activities are always um, uh, built in such a way to take into account who will be doing those things. So this is a very concrete way of taking the gender lens into account, but also in the representation making sure that the specific concerns, not just of women who are in mobility or in displacement, but also of women-headed households among those who host in the resident communities, that these interests and needs and concerns are really represented. How? Making sure that their agency is represented so that they themselves, the same way that Alpha Camera, who now we can finally see on the screen, uh, is really voicing the experiences. So the same, it is very carefully done in the, in the case of women. Uh, this goes very much hand in hand with the other question on sustainability, because this is a, a really key point. And it is the reason why you have heard me saying that several times, responsabilization and ownership local actors and authorities need to be at the center of this action. The same way we are hearing from Mechelen, in the same way we have heard from Colombia. The institutionalization and having local actors and local authorities occupying their right space and taking their responsibility on the, on the vision they have on their territories, hand in hand with civil society, hand in hand with um, members from um, they displace or migrant communities, but there, there needs to be this step that is done. And this is why I concluded my, concluded my very brief intervention before and now by saying that development actors, they have this huge responsibility of making sure that the responsabilization of local actors is always at the core of no matter what livelihood or uh, socioeconomic or training uh, and vocational educational training oriented intervention, because at the end of the day, these are the actors that will make sure that these interventions will last. Thank you. Thank you, Rafaela. And I think you have done an excellent job actually concluding the program today and pulling in um, all of the elements that we need to be thinking about to figure out not just what works and understanding what the conditions of success are, but actually how we can embed these good ideas into the fabrics of communities, into something um, that continues 
that is sustainable and that people want to invest in, that people feel like this is giving them opportunities for their lives. And I think thinking more systematically about the connection between livelihood activities and social cohesion goals can, can help us get there. Um, and also thinking about who needs to be at the table, um, how everybody in a community can participate equally in um, the, the programs and services uh, in their communities. Um, so I wanna thank all of the panelists for their really rich, very concrete and insightful uh, remarks today. Um, audio and video from today's webinar will be available on MPI's website, uh, migrationpolicy.org. Um, and uh, reporters um, on the call can contact um, Yosef Hamid at uh, 202-266. 1930 for any additional information. Uh, we thank you all for being a part of this uh, virtual side event for the International Migration Review Forum, and we look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you so much.